This is Emily from San Diego, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know that you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. Let's get started. As always, I'd like to take the time to thank everyone for supporting California Dreaming on Patreon. If you would like to help contribute to the production of our show and to gain access to all the exclusive content on there, for as little as $1 a month, you can unlock more than a dozen exclusive bonuses. This week, I'd like to thank Mike B., Juliet H., and Sandra C. for increasing their pledges, and Brooklyn R., Samantha C., Carrie H., Carrie C., Karen P., Brittany A., Lisa B., Lisa L., and Craig A. for becoming brand new supporters. Or if you would like to make a one-time donation, you can do so by using our email on PayPal at californiapod at gmail.com. If you would like to help out the show in a way that won't cost you anything, you can go to Apple Podcasts or whichever pod directory you listen to your shows on and leave us a nice review. All of that helps give our show more visibility. Thank you again for all of your help and support. Lately, there's been a spattering of unsolved cases getting solved because of the accessibility of DNA databases and the advancement of DNA technology. Investigators are utilizing these new and popular ancestry and genealogy sites and making familial links to cold cases. Did you ever wonder when you see these guys getting arrested 20, 30, 40 years after the fact? Did they think that they would never get caught? Did the killer or rapist ever stop worrying? How long did it take them to stop looking over their shoulders? I think about the Golden State Killer, aka the original Night Stalker, just living his old self in retirement, never thinking that he was going to get caught. And then one day, they came knocking on his door and all his dirty secrets came to the surface. He probably thought he would take them all to his grave, thinking after all these years that he had gotten away with every single crime that he committed. As time passes, memories fade, detectives retire, witnesses pass away, the trail goes cold, ice cold, and everyone is thinking... It will never become warm again. 
However, in recent months, we've seen cold case after cold case end up in the solved column. And we're going to talk about one of those cold cases here today. Though it wasn't DNA that would bring down the killer, it was just circumstance. In today's 78th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Crazy in Love. Dreamers, I'm going to tell you the love story of a woman named Marianne, a man named Archie, and then another man named Janos. Marianne and Archie McFarlane met sometime in the early 1950s. They both worked for Pitney Bowes, and many of us are familiar with a company that is most commonly known for its postage meters and mailing equipment, postal services, stuff like that, which is still in full operations worldwide today. At the time, Marianne was 18 and Archie, 27. But at the time, Marianne was already married to a man who was enlisted in the military. So she and Archie at first were only friends. Eventually, Marianne would move back to Michigan where she grew up and she and her husband would set down roots there and Archie and her would lose touch. After all, they had only maintained a professional relationship, so really not all that big of a deal. In 1960, Marianne and her husband welcomed their one and only child, a daughter named Linda. But the marriage didn't last much longer than that. When Marianne was 26, she and her husband divorced. Looking through some of her belongings and keepsakes one day, she discovered an old Christmas card list that she had made some years back during her days at Pitney Bowes. At the top of the list was Archie's name. She decided to send him a card and, well, he wrote back. They began corresponding, I guess kind of like pen pals, and eventually Archie traveled to Michigan to pay Marianne a visit. It was clear that the two began having feelings for one another, and a romance began blossoming. After Archie returned to his home in California, he invited Marianne and her daughter Linda to come visit him in Southern California, which they did. It wasn't long before Marianne decided she wanted to be with Archie and she wanted to stay in California. So the couple got married. Archie raised Linda as his own, and then in 1965, they added a son, Gary, to their little family. They bought a house in the city of Torrance, California in 1976, and they continued to live their modest, comfortable, suburban lives. Let there be no doubt, dreamers, Marianne was deeply loved and cared for by Archie. So much so that I would even say it's an intense kind of love that's so penetrating. If one were to find this in their lifetime, you would be lucky. Of course, I did not know Archie, but from all I've read and all that I've heard, he's the kind of man that if you are lucky enough to find one like him, you don't want to let him go. He was handsome, an adventure seeker. He loved to surf. He was a California guy through and through. Just good old Arch. Kind, 
caring, laid back, easygoing, soft-spoken, affable, a tremendously devoted provider. He was madly in love with his wife and his family. And this was the quintessential family of the time. Dad went to work religiously. Mom stayed home and tended to the family. Their son Gary would describe it as just what you would see on a show like Leave it to Beaver. This may not be everyone's ideal situation. Not every family is able to have one parent stay home and the other work. But it was more typical of the time. Gary and his dad were very, very close. He taught him everything he knew. Gary idolized his dad. So you get the picture. This was your typical nuclear family. At least, that's what everyone on the outside looking in would see. Marianne, for whatever reasons, grew bored with her marriage. I don't know if bored is the right word. I don't know what feelings were brewing inside her mind and in her heart. Maybe dissatisfaction. Whatever the case, from all that I understood of their marriage, there wasn't really anything that Archie did that would have driven her away. He wasn't mean to her. He didn't yell. He wasn't violent. He didn't have affairs. He loved his wife and his family. But from what I could glean, he was wrapped up in his work, and Marianne began to feel ignored by Archie, that he just wasn't paying her any attention. I suppose all of that is relative. If he was a pretty regimented kind of guy, maybe he would get up, get ready for work, have his coffee, his breakfast, his newspaper, leave for work, come home, she'd have dinner ready, maybe he'd watch the evening news, kiss the kids goodnight, go to bed, wake up, and repeat. My dad was a routine kind of guy like that, and my mom stayed home, and it was pretty humdrum, but it was just life, you know? So sometime in 1982, Marianne had gone to a little district in Torrance called Alpine Village to have dinner with a friend. There, she had a chance encounter with a young man, a younger man named Janos Kolkskar. He was 15 years younger than Marianne, almost 25 years younger than her husband Archie. They talked, they danced. Eventually, Janos asked Marianne for her phone number. She told him that she was married, but she gave him her phone number anyway. He began calling her. You know, she was home during the day while Archie was at work and the kids were at school. I don't know how much she hesitated his request to go out, but eventually she did agree to a dinner date with Janos. Then it started becoming a regular thing. And then the relationship turned sexual. It seemed as though perhaps Archie began to notice a change in his wife. She had perked up around the house a little bit, a little bounce in her step, dressed up a little more, you know, subtle yet noticeable changes. 
Eventually, he asked her about it, and it seemed as though she was quick to fess up. No beating around the bush. No denials. She just told him, I'm having an affair. Yeah, she spilled the beans pretty easily. Maybe it was a relief to get it off her chest. Or maybe she wanted to try to ignite a little bit of passion towards her from Archie. I saw one telling of the story that Archie gave Marianne his blessings for her to carry on this affair, but I don't know if I necessarily believe that. Not trying to fight something and giving someone their blessings is not the same thing. Whatever the case, he did not demand that she break off her affair. If this was what she wanted, Archie loved her enough to not want to push her away. He didn't want her out of his life. So, he stood by while Marianne carried on with her affair with Janos. Their son Gary, who was by this time 17, close to 18 years old, he began to realize that his mom was involved in an extramarital affair, and he knew that his dad knew about it. While some would say Archie allowed this to go on because he wanted Marianne to be happy, Gary would say it was more of an issue of his dad being powerless to stop it. What was he supposed to do? Keep tabs on Marianne's whereabouts at all times? Lock her in the house? There wasn't anything he could do. And Gary, he could see the toll that this was taking on his dad that his dad was in a lot of pain over this. Gary has said when his mom would tell him that she was going out with her friends, once the door closed, tears would well up in his dad's eyes. Gary's anger and resentment towards his mom for the hurt that she was causing his dad was steadily growing. Then, one evening in 1984, 19-year-old Gary and his mom got into a heated argument. Archie attempted to intervene and would eventually side with his son. Appalled that her husband would side with him against her, Marianne stormed out of the room, retreating to her bedroom. Not even a minute later, the house phone rang. Gary looked over at his father, and a gloom and sadness came over him, and Archie said, that guy is calling. Gary was livid. He barged into his mother's room and demanded that she get off the phone. She told him to get out of her room, but Gary wasn't having it. He went over to his mom, grabbed the phone out of her hand, and said into it, Don't ever f***ing call here again, I swear to God. And he slammed the phone down. But the phone rang again. Yanos has some nerve, huh? Gary answered the phone and yelled into the receiver, Do you have any idea what you are doing to my family? Don't ever call here again. And he slammed the phone down for a second time. Marianne stood up and yelled, That's it. I'm out of here. She began to pack a suitcase and some of her clothes and essentials while her son yelled at her to go ahead, get out. But Archie was trying to stop him from yelling at her, trying to get him to calm down. Marianne left, left her children, her husband, and her home. She moved in with Janos, 
to his tiny little apartment a couple cities over in Long Beach, California. Archie, I believe, was saddened and heartbroken over his wife moving out to live with this boyfriend of hers. But it was clear to Gary that his dad desperately wanted her to come home, hoping she eventually would. And it would take a little more than a year and change for Mary to realize what she left behind. Sure, Janos was young and fun to be with, exciting, all that. But Archie was solid, reliable, the provider. He had a career. They had the home. With Archie, there was stability, security, a future of not having to worry about anything. But Janos? Not so much. He was a lot of drama to deal with. His feelings for Marianne, this love that seemingly blurred the lines crossing over into obsession, were constantly heightened. She began to worry about their age difference between them. What if a few years down the road he wanted to move on? Where would she be left? Janos had no financial security. He seemingly had no direction in which he was headed. There was no stability. There was no security. And Marianne realized that she could not put her faith in this. As she was getting older, she could see her priorities with a little more clarity. With Archie, she would be financially secure forever. With Janos, it was a gamble. So she decided to move back home with her family. When Archie told Gary that mom was moving back and that they were going to work things out, Gary tried to talk his dad into moving on with his life. But Archie told him that he still loved Marianne, that he cared for her deeply and was committed to their marriage. And he asked his son to please treat his mother with respect in spite of everything. What a difficult place for their son to be in, isn't it? Janos wanted Mary to stay. He begged her. But she had already made up her mind. How I see it, dreamers, this woman just wanted things when she wanted things, when it was convenient for her. She wanted to be with Archie because she was a single divorced mom, and he was willing and happy to step into the role of family man and take care of her. It was convenient for her. Bored with that, she began this years-long affair with Janos because it was convenient for her. And then she dumped her family to go live with this guy because her son was giving her pushback for what she was doing to their family because it was convenient for her. Then, once she grew tired of Janos, realizing that life with him was going to be a financial struggle, she moved back home with her family when it was convenient for her. Janos was a dramatic individual. His love for Marianne transcended passion. It was an obsession. He would not let Marianne go easily. And when she told him she was moving home with her husband, he told her, If you leave me, I will skin you alive. I'm pretty sure this threat did nothing to persuade Marianne to change her mind, as she did end up moving back home to try and patch things up with Archie. Once Marianne was back home, 
Janos called incessantly. He threatened her repeatedly in an effort to get her to come back. He would tell her over and over that there were going to be consequences if she did not return to live with him. Archie was answering the nonstop barrage of calls as well. On December 2, 1985, Marianne could hear Archie on the phone, having somewhat of a heated conversation. Eventually, she heard Archie yell, Go fly a kite. You know, Archie's polite way of telling the guy to F off. Janos called back, but they did not pick up, allowing their answering machine to get it. They stood there, listening as Janos made another threat. You better call me back, or I'm coming to get you. He sounded pretty angry. And the following day, Janos showed up at the McFarlane's home. Gary went to the door and saw him standing there. The nerve of this guy, standing there on their front porch. Disgusted, Gary walked away, but Archie went and spoke to him. He asked him, Why did you come here? Gary tried to observe the exchange. To him, Janos was acting very bizarrely, almost kind of deranged. He shook his dad's hand and the men sat down to talk. When Janos arrived, Marianne was in the shower. When she got out and got dressed and came into the living room, she was shocked to see her husband and her boyfriend, well, ex-boyfriend, I guess, sitting there talking. Janos said to her, Darling, come sit over here by me. So she did. He then turned to Archie. As you know, I've been seeing your wife. He went on to explain that Marianne belonged to him and that he was the one who was good for her. Archie retorted that he and Marianne had been married for many years and that he did not have any kind of claim or ownership over her. And the last he checked, the affair was over. Marianne chose to come home and is with him. Janos insisted that he wanted to hear this come from Marianne. She affirmed what Archie was saying. Their love affair was no more. Janos took a deep breath, stood up, and asked to use the restroom. When Marianne had sat down in the living room, she took notice of a case that Janos had brought with him and set it down on the coffee table in front of him. When he got up to use the restroom, she opened it and saw that there was a gun inside. She never knew that Janos ever owned a gun, nor did she know how or when he acquired one. Fearful of what may happen, she took the gun and the case out to their backyard and hid it underneath some bushes. When Janos emerged from the bathroom, Marianne confronted him about bringing a gun into her home and followed that up with telling him to leave immediately. He made his way to the front door and he walked outside and she demanded to know what he was trying to do, what he brought the gun there for. Janos told her that he wanted to kill himself on her front lawn. She told him that he was young and that she was much too old for him and it would be much better for him to find someone closer to his own age that he could build a life with. Janos appeared to be devastatingly crushed. 
He was unable to accept or cope with the fact that Marianne was telling him that it was over for good. He proclaimed his unyielding love, that there was no one else. That's impossible because she was the one. This was December 3rd, 1985, and Janos made this admonition. If Marianne refused to take him back by Christmas Day, he would commit suicide. As Janos was about to leave, he asked Marianne if he could see her again. She told him that she would come by and visit him in a few days to check on him, to make sure that he hadn't followed through on his threats of suicide. But when a few days passed, Marianne called Janos and told him that she would not be able to visit because her car was broken down. This was not true. She just didn't want to see him. She didn't think it was a good idea that it would only make the situation worse. But only three days after Janos had made his threats on the McFarland's front lawn, on the morning of Friday, December 6th, Janos showed back up at Marianne's house. Archie was at work. She invited him in and made him breakfast and sat and talked with him. He insisted that their love affair wasn't over and that he knows that there's a reason why she took that gun from him to stop him from killing himself because she did not want him to die because she knew that deep down that she wanted to come back to him. On the evening of Sunday, December 8th, 1985, Archie told his wife and son that he was going to be waking up earlier than usual the following morning. He typically did not leave for work until 6 a.m., and he would make a habit of knocking on Gary's door when he got up to make sure that Gary was getting up because Gary was supposed to be at work by 5.30, and he had that pesky habit of shutting his alarm off and oversleeping. So on Monday morning, December 9th, Marianne heard Archie knocking on Gary's bedroom door. This was at about 4.30 in the morning. Archie cracked the door, poked his head in, and told his son he was getting him up because he was leaving for work earlier than usual and would not be around to wake him up any later. Gary said, okay, thanks, Dad, love you. They said their goodbyes, and Archie soon left for work. The sun had yet to rise. Gary got out of bed, took a shower, and had breakfast. At around 5.15 a.m., he received a phone call from work asking him to bring a saw to cut some branches off the Christmas tree that they had set up. As soon as he was getting ready to leave, he pushed the button that was near the front door of the house that opened the garage door so he could grab that saw. It was still so dark outside he could barely see a thing. He began walking down the front steps of the house when he saw what he thought was someone sleeping in the driveway. Strange. Why would a homeless person be asleep right there? As the garage door continued to raise, the light inside shed onto the driveway. Little by little, as it lit more and more, as Gary got closer, he suddenly recognized the clothing on the man lying in the driveway was his dad's. He then realized his father's car was still running. He called out to his dad while he hurried over to where he lay. 
He nudged him on the shoulder, thinking perhaps he had a heart attack or some sort of medical episode because at the moment, Gary didn't notice any blood. It was a moment of disbelief. His dad was only 58 years old. Always been pretty good health. It didn't make much sense for him to seem so lifeless. It was a terrible feeling, and this I can relate. Very much so, as my dad did have a heart attack in this manner. We found him on the ground, on his side, his hand across his chest. But my dad did have a massive heart attack and died. It was an awful feeling when you're not expecting it. So Archie failed to respond to Gary's calls. He ran into the house, yelling for his mother, telling her to hurry. Marianne had heard the garage door opening and then heard her son yelling for his dad. When he came running into the house, he told her that Archie was lying on the driveway and he could not get him to respond. She came and stood near the front door and froze in a state of shock. Archie was lying on his side in a fetal position, his hand across his body. She saw his car, and the driver's door was open and the engine was running. She too thought Archie must have had a heart attack and tried to get back out of the car and into the house, but was unable to make it, grasped at his chest and fell to the ground. A next-door neighbor, hearing the commotion outside, came out of his house and ran over to help. He could see both Gary and Marianne were in a state of shock. He placed his hand on Archie, but then realized 911 had yet to be called, so he ran back to his house and called 911, then returned to the scene. The neighbor told Marianne to go inside to get a comforter or a blanket to keep Archie warm on this chilly December morning. Then... The neighbor carefully turned Archie onto his back. His arms shifted to his side. And that's when all three of them saw Archie's chest covered in blood. This definitely wasn't a heart attack. Gary knew. The son who stood by and watched his mom's lover wreak havoc on their lives for years by this point. He knew exactly who made his dad this way. He turned to his mother and said, I can't believe that motherfucker. Marianne cried, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. I can't believe he would do this. I'm so sorry, son. By the time paramedics arrived, it was too late. Archie was gone. Gary, only 20 years old by this time, was beside himself with grief. Everything good and innocent and pure that he had ever known in life just died right along with his dad. It was all gone forever. As mother and son stood there shivering in the cold, tears streaming down both of their faces, kneeling down next to their lifeless husband and father, Gary cradled his dad in his arms. The realization sank in hard and deep. He pressed his mother more. You know who did this. You know that son of a bitch did this. He knew. They both knew immediately, without an ounce of doubt. The one man who was hell-bent on disrupting their lives just did it. 
for good. Torrance police officers Pete Vellis and Juan Duvall were the first officers to arrive at the scene at 5.40 a.m. Paramedics were there attempting to treat Archie, but it was all for naught. They were told by paramedics that Archie was stabbed multiple times in the upper torso. It wasn't a robbery. Nothing was taken from Archie. No valuables. His wallet was still in his pocket and it had $287 in it. And of course, his car was still there. Ignition on. There were no witnesses to the stabbing. But to the officers and the detectives that would arrive... It was clear that Archie was targeted and executed. And whomever committed this crime left little behind in the way of forensic evidence, though this would be before the evolution of DNA science. There was no murder weapon, no fingerprints, no foreign hairs. It looked as though it could have been a violent struggle, but who knows? If Archie was taken by surprise, it was still very dark. His assailant could have been younger and more capable than he. But there was nothing in the way of anything useful in terms of physical evidence left on or around the McFarland's driveway. But there was one big, huge clue. One that was very strange, yet very telling. Archie was stabbed one time in the groin area. What did that mean to detectives? Well, three things. This was a message. This was personal. And this was sexual. The officers first spoke to Marianne. She told them repeatedly that she was sorry. She was sorry. She knows who did this. And she gave them the name of her lover. Janos Kulksar. The detectives were like, okay, who's Janos? She provided them with his home address, a description of his vehicle, and a picture of him. She explained, probably sheepishly, to them that Janos was her ex-boyfriend. She recalled the incident a few days earlier when Janos had showed up at their house with a gun and that he was calling her incessantly to tell her that they wanted their relationship to continue and that he on more than one occasion, threatened suicide if she did not come back to him. Marianne retrieved the gun and its case and turned it over to the officers. The case also contained two magazines with a total of 13 rounds. That would be more than enough to carry around with you if you were presumably going to commit suicide, don't you think? It only takes one. The officers drove Marianne to the hospital following the ambulance that transported Archie there. When they arrived, they learned that Archie was pronounced dead on arrival. Marianne's daughter, Linda, arrived at the hospital and spoke to officers as well. She confirmed that she knew her mother to have recent troubles with the man with whom she was having an affair. Linda told officers, among other things, that her mom told her that Yano said that he would get even and that Marianne would someday pay for his grief. Once officers understood what Marianne was telling them about this Janos person, a man who was originally from Hungary, 
They contacted the Long Beach Police Department and requested officers be sent to his address right away. Long Beach Police Officers David Frazier and his partner Tommy Steinbrenner were dispatched to the address provided to them by Marianne. In hand, they had the make, model, and license plate number of his vehicle as well, which was a black Volkswagen Beetle. They arrived at Janos's place at 6.04 a.m. The officers began feeling the hoods of the vehicles of the cars parked in the area. It was 39 degrees or 4 degrees Celsius that morning, so all of them were cold, except for one. They found Janos's car parked on the street a few steps up the way from his address, and the engine hood was hot to the touch, as if it had just been driven back from someplace and parked here. The officer would even say that the way that it felt, the way that it smelled, it was as if the driver had pushed this VW Beetle to its limits getting it back here into its unassuming parking spot. The officer also looked inside the vehicle and on the passenger seat, he saw a basket of laundry, neatly folded. Officer Frazier recorded the time in his report. The hood of this car was hot at 6.10 a.m. This was less than an hour and a half from the time Gary found his dad lying in the driveway. The officer radioed to a sergeant and backup officers began converging setting up a perimeter around Janos's residence. And they laid low and waited. 17 minutes later, at 6.27 a.m., the officer spotted a man matching Janos's description exiting his apartment. It was him, looking pretty pleased with himself, actually. His bushy head of hair was all wet, like he had just taken a shower, and he was wearing a beige sweatsuit. They watched him as he walked towards the parked VW Beetle, and it did not appear he had anything in his hands. He opened the driver's side door and got in. Officer Frazier radioed to his supervisor that the suspect was getting into his car, and he quickly ran over to the car with his gun drawn and ordered Janos out of the vehicle. They asked him for his name. He told them, Janos Kolkskar. They asked him for his ID and he handed it over. Officer Frazier asked him where he was headed at this early hour, and he said he was going to his brother's house to do laundry. Then the officer asked him why his car engine was hot if he was leaving just now. Janos rolled back on his first answer. He said he had left a little earlier, but had to come back because he forgot something. Okay, what did you forget? His laundry. But Officer Frazier had already spotted the laundry basket inside the car before Janos emerged from his apartment. And the laundry was neatly folded and appeared to be fresh and clean. So, folding dirty laundry? Okay. They searched the VW, but they did not find a thing. No weapon, no blood. Nothing suspicious that would have you thinking that this guy just came back from a violent stabbing. And when officers looked inside Janos's apartment, just like in the car, they did not find much in the way of incriminating evidence. Except there was this one thing that seemed weird, based on everything Janos had said thus far. Across the shower curtain rod in the bathroom, hanging over the tub, were some wet clothes. 
one shirt, and one pair of pants. So what's the deal with this? Is this guy spot cleaning his clothes? If so, why is he leaving them hanging in the bathroom if he's supposedly heading out to go do laundry? Officer Frazier let Janos know that he was being placed into custody on suspicion of murder, and he was advised of his Miranda rights. Torrance Police Detective Gilbert Crank was called to the scene of Janos's residence. He was filled in on what happened in Torrance at the McFarland residence and filled him in on what their observations were in regards to Janos's vehicle, the condition in which they found the car in considering the outside temperature, and Janos's explanations for everything that was going on. And he actually changed his story when Detective Crank talked to him. Rather than telling him what he told the first officers on the scene that he was going to do his laundry, he told him that he was going to his brother's house to change the oil filter in his car. He also told Detective Crank that he did not leave his apartment that morning prior to being taken into custody and that nobody else used his car. Did Janos think that the officers weren't going to compare notes? Yeah, so add inconsistencies to the list of things that point to Janos as being involved in this. Janos was taken to the Torrance Police Department. Detective Crank now had 72 hours to pull together enough evidence in this case in order to convince the district attorney to file murder charges against Janos Kolksar. Detective Crank was pretty confident that he had a solid case against his suspect. I mean, they were pointed exactly in his direction by the victim's wife. And from what they found at the apartment, they were convinced that they weren't wrong. They had the warm vehicle engine, the inconsistent laundry story, the wet clothing. Marianne was convinced Janos was the only person who could have or would have done this. Sounds like a slam dunk, doesn't it? To the detectives, Janos denied involvement, insisting that he had nothing to do with Archie's murder. And despite all of the circumstances pointing at him, the fact was that lab tests concluded there was not one speck of blood to be found anywhere on, in, or around Janos, his car, his apartment, his clothing, his body, nothing, anywhere. He had no injuries, no scratches, no cuts, nothing to indicate that he had been involved in a violent knife attack. On top of this, Janos had no criminal history. So perhaps they had the wrong guy? Detective Crank didn't think so. He pressed forward with his investigation. After Janos was booked into custody, Detective Crank spoke to him again. And again, Janos's ever-changing story evolved, giving yet another version of events the morning Archie was murdered. This time he said he had gotten up earlier that morning. He drove towards his brother's house and realized that he needed to go back to get some laundry. When he came back out to his car, he was confronted by police. Janos also explained that he had washed some clothes by hand while he was inside, as they did find those wet pants and shirt hanging over the tub. They did find a knife in the sink and a damp towel, but as I've said, no traces of blood were found on anything. Don't forget, this is 1985, so forensic testing isn't very advanced at this point. 
Later that same day of the murder, Detective Crank spoke to Laszlo Kolkskar, Janos's brother. He came down to the police station as soon as he heard his brother was under arrest. He told them the last he saw his brother was on Sunday afternoon, the day before Archie's murder, and that they spoke on the phone around 9.30 p.m. on Sunday night. Laszlo told the detectives that in his phone call, his brother mentioned a conversation he had had with Marianne earlier in the week, that she was worried about her future, that she was going to be 60 years old in 10 years, and that she needed stability. Janos told his brother that Marianne said, if Archie were to suddenly drop dead, I would have everything. When Laszlo finished talking to Detective Crank, they allowed him to go and speak to his brother. They spoke in Hungarian, but whether or not they knew this, their conversation was recorded and subsequently translated into English. Laszlo began by asking, What's going on? Did you lose your mind? Janos answered, Why? Laszlo asked, What did you do? Janos answered that he did not do anything. His brother asked, What do you mean you didn't do anything? What happened? Janos said that he wanted to come over to his house to fix his car and change the oil, but the police stopped him and pointed guns at him. Detective Crank was watching over the conversation, and when he came to find out what was being said at this point in Hungarian, he noted that Laszlo appeared to be surprised that Janos was saying he was going to come over to his house that morning. Laszlo asked him what time he was planning to come over to his house. Janos answered that he didn't know, but it was already getting light. Skeptical, Laszlo said, Now, you, tell me the truth already. What happened? The day after the murder, on Tuesday, Marianne went to the Torrance police station. She spoke to Detective Crank and recounted all of the incidents with Janos recently his erratic behavior, his obsessiveness, the threats that he made. She also made it very clear in no uncertain terms. Janos was no early-to-bed, early-to-rise kind of person, that he was a late sleeper and he would never get up early if he didn't have to, especially not before dawn, not to do laundry, not to work in his car, just no. Marianne did, however, want the opportunity to speak to Janos herself. She asked the detective if this would be possible. She wanted Janos to admit to her face that he had killed her husband. Detective Crank had this idea, okay? If he allowed them to speak, if he could record the conversation, maybe he would slip up and say something incriminating. Detective Crank allowed it. He wanted to be present in the room, however. Marianne agreed to that. When Marianne came face to face with Janos, she was extremely emotional and confrontational right off the bat. As the tape was rolling, immortalizing every moment, how could you do such a thing and think you're a man? You are the poorest excuse for a man. If you ever get out of here alive, I'll kill you. Do you know what you've done? You've destroyed me. You stalked me around my house. 
You killed my son's father. Somebody who's old enough to be your father. If I had known what you were going to do, I would have loaded your gun myself and given it to you to kill yourself. Janos continued his denials. I didn't do what you are accusing me. I did not do it. Of course, Marianne knew better. If I had a gun, I'd blow your damn brains out right now. Love? You did this in the name of love? And then she spit on him. Janos continued his denials. I didn't kill him. I did not kill him. I did not murder your husband. And I don't know anybody who did it. I did not pay anyone to do it. I did not kill your husband. He is not your husband. I am your husband. He is just on the paper. Marianne raged on. I hate you with all the passion I can dig up. The detective watched the whole tirade unfold, not sure what to think. Marianne seemed genuinely distraught and angry with Janos. But this was still the man she left her husband and son behind for, with whom she carried on a years-long passionate love affair. They aren't so quick to dismiss her for potentially knowing more than she's letting on. The detective didn't think Marianne was directly involved in Archie's murder, but was it possible she could have floated the idea around? And Janos decided to act on it? Yeah, could be. It's happened before. But for now, Janos's involvement in this was pretty cut and dried to Detective Crank. So two days after the murder, on December 11th, he took his findings to the district attorney. And then he got the surprise of his life. The DA refused to file the charges. No confession, no witnesses, no murder weapon, no physical evidence, no murder indictment. They were unwilling to roll the dice on a highly circumstantial case. That same day, Janos Kuksar walked out of jail a free man. Detective Crank, to him, this was a blow, and it hurt. He couldn't believe the DA wasn't seeing what he was seeing. He knew that he was looking at the man who stabbed Archie McFarlane in the chest and in the groin. And he's thinking, this arrogant son of a bitch is beating the system. The path to Marianne was now clear, so thought Janos. As soon as he was released, he began calling Marianne again. He simply refused to accept that their relationship was over. And you know, he's not in jail because he's being truthful, right? He did not kill Archie. It's not clear what Marianne was thinking at this point. Certainly she must have had some inkling that Janos had her husband's blood on his hands. Archie had not an enemy in the world, except the man who wanted the one thing he couldn't have, his wife. Then there's the brokenness of her son. He lost his father, a thing that devastated him. And we all know 
He knows that Janos had a hand in this. And we know that there is no shortage of animosity towards his mom over her betrayals. No matter where Marianne was at with it when Archie was killed, even though she had returned home to her family, none of this would be if not for her indiscretions. And her coming back, not allowing his dad the time and space to move on with his life, that is what led to his death. He was certain of it, regardless of what the DA thought. He didn't need a murder indictment to know the truth. Marianne had to do something, anything, to try and rectify this. She allowed the holidays to pass. I can only imagine how tense and strained and sad Christmas was that year, and I'm sure every year to follow. So after the new year, on January 2nd, 1986, Marianne got in touch with Detective Crank. She told him that Janos was calling her, and he wanted to meet with her to prove that he had nothing to do with Archie's murder. Marianne told the detective that she wanted to meet with him but wanted to do so while wearing a hidden wire in order to record the conversation. She wanted to try and get him to confess to the murder. Four days later, on January 6th, Marianne and Janos met at a Bob's Big Boy restaurant. She eventually just asked, Will you tell me, you tell me what happened? Nothing happened. Nothing happened, and why do you think I would do such a thing like this? Marianne answered, You are not being honest with me, and I know it. He said, What do you want to hear? Do you want me to lie to you? Complete, determined, resolute. He did not kill Archie. He did say some cryptic things. He talked about the Friday before the murder when he unexpectedly showed up at Marianne's home. He referred to something that she had said to him as he was leaving their home. It never clicked until I came home. Sometimes I'm slow on things, you know, but it never clicked. Marianne reminded him of what he told her that day that he was leaving, that this story wasn't over yet and that maybe there was a reason why I took that gun from you and kept you from killing yourself. Janos answered, I believe everything happened for a reason. I made up my mind. It's not nice to talk about it, you know, because now it's different. Janos's love, or so-called love, his passion for Marianne remained sustained. Would you kiss me one last time? Marianne replied, No. Please? No. The end. This is goodbye forever. And that was that. Two months later, Detective Crank had to move on from the case. Other things were taking precedence. Nothing, it seemed, was going to change as far as the case against Janos. Everything was on the table, and it was certainly crystal clear who was responsible for Archie's death. But if the DA was unwilling to see what he saw, he had to shelve it. Evidence wasn't going to suddenly appear. He had what he had, yet it wasn't enough. 
So when Marianne said, this is goodbye forever, that wouldn't exactly be the case. Because, you know, people in love sometimes do and think and believe nonsensical things. It would be maybe a year or so later that Marianne would start her relationship with Janos all over again. This time, with Archie gone, it would not be a love affair. It would be just love. Though they would never live together again, and she would deny, deny, deny that she ever loved Janos. They saw each other several times a week, and they were sexually intimate. He did things for her, anything and everything that she needed. He worked for her. He did chores. He ran errands. She at times described him as an indentured servant. Those were her words, and to me, that sounds kind of like an acknowledgement of a debt owed. A serious debt that Janos is devoted to repaying for the remainder of his days. What kind of debt would require this level of servitude? Must be something serious. And she was keeping all of this a secret. The year following his father's death was raw and painful for Gary. Spring passed, then summer. The summers he and his dad loved to go surfing. He just couldn't bring himself to set foot into the ocean anymore. None of this made any sense. Why was Janos a free man? How is he not sitting in jail right now? How could the district attorney not see the writing on the wall? Everything Gary ever knew was now thrown into question. The murder, his mother, the police, the system, the world. Nothing was right. It was heartbreaking and infuriating. Not only to Gary, but to the police as well who were as sure as the sky was blue that Yano stabbed Archie McFarlane to death. Yet he's still out and about, living life, breathing the same free air as Gary. It was so painfully wrong to him. Archie's murder case sat on Detective's crank shelf collecting dust. No confession, no weapon, no witnesses. It grew cold. And there was nothing Detective Crank could do about it but just wait. Put it away. Maybe a fresh set of eyes could take a look at it sometime down the line. Maybe someone else will see something that he didn't see. But then there was a development in the case a couple of years later. Not for the official police investigation, no, not for them, but for Gary. And it was more than any one human being should be made to bear. He sat down one day to help his mom pay a few bills when he got to the phone bill. He noticed several calls going back and forth, you know, kind of frequently, to Long Beach. So Gary dialed the number. And who was it that picked up the phone on the other end? None other than Janos Kulksar. Gary was absolutely stunned. Why was his mother still speaking to this man 
the man that they were both certain was responsible for stabbing his father to death. When Gary made this discovery, he refused to have anything to do with his mother. He couldn't even face her or speak to her. He wrote her a letter and put it into her mail slot, telling her, as far as he was concerned, their relationship was dead. How could she? The day that they found his father dead on their driveway, she named Janos as the killer. She angrily confronted him while he was in custody. She even tried to get him to admit to it while she was wired. Yet now she's rekindled their romance. Like I said, they've never lived together again. But the feelings for one another, the passion that they shared, it had not extinguished despite the suspicions and the accusations. They were together, and that was more than Gary could take. He lost his dad, and now his mom is canoodling with his killer. He felt as though his mom justified her actions in going back and resuming her relationship with Janos because there was no proof that he actually killed his dad. And then there's the questions that continue to loom how much did Mary know about Janos's involvement in Archie's murder? If she did know anything, she certainly wasn't saying anything to anyone, especially to Gary. And the damage was done to the relationship between mother and son, and it seemed beyond repair. And like that, it would remain for years to come. There was an occasion when Gary happened to run into his mom at the grocery store. She tried to explain herself, claiming that she did not love Janos, that she was just using him, making him do things for her that she needed or couldn't do for herself. In her words, she told Gary, because of what he did to your father. Gary simply could not cope with that. So the cold silence went on. Gary would eventually make his own way in life. He settled into a career. He got married. He became a dad. With the arrival of his first child, he and Marianne resumed a somewhat cordial relationship so she could be involved with the grandchildren. And they just avoided the elephant in the room. Of course, his father's unsolved murder hung over his existence like a dark, unrelenting cloud. To him, the case was technically unsolved, but in his mind, it was solved. With every passing year, with every passing milestone in Gary's life, it was overshadowed with the compunction and regret that his father was not there to see it. Never seeing him get married, never having the chance to become a grandpa, every moment of Gary's life was eclipsed by the fact that his dad was not there with him. So fast forward 14 years to 1999. The Torrance Police Department began looking back in time at some of their old homicide cases, about 30 of them to be exact, and Archie McFarland's was one of them. Six homicide detectives were assigned to take a look at each of these cold cases, but they were not dedicated cold case investigators. 
They were asked to give these cases a look-see when they had some free time. And we've heard many times how homicide detectives are often bogged down with pretty heavy caseloads. And these were no different. They had very little time to dedicate to these cold cases. The department would eventually form a full-time cold case task force, but that would not be for another seven or eight years away. In 2002, some 17 years after Archie's murder, 17 long years that Gary had spent angry and frustrated and haunted by his dad's violent death, Detective Crank had already hung up his badge. One of those six detectives tasked with looking at some of the cold cases, Detective Walt Delsine. He was going through them, seeing if one stood out to him, if there was one that just jumped out that he could focus on. Well, he would be the fresh set of eyes that Detective Crank had hoped for all those years earlier. He skimmed over Archie's file pulled it out of the stack. This was the one he needed to dig into. By this time, they had a new district attorney, and he was aggressive, and he was familiar with Archie's case. As a matter of fact, as soon as he read the files, he knew Janos Kolksar was good for this murder. Both the DA and the detective agreed. This guy did it. Just as Detective Crank felt all those years earlier, but he just didn't have the DA on his side. The kind of DA that was willing to roll the dice on a highly circumstantial case. Back in those days, without physical evidence, eyewitnesses, or a confession, DAs were reluctant to file charges. And I've said this before, Dreamers, if you've been on a jury, if the case you are chosen for is a circumstantial case, The jurors are reminded that circumstantial evidence is just as valid and as valuable as forensic evidence. And here, Gary might just have the right DA on his side that believes in the circumstances that point to Janos being the man who stabbed his dad to death. Detective Delsine contacted Gary to re-interview him, and Gary told him the whole story and made it clear that he continued to believe that Janos Kolksar killed his dad. But despite this sudden renewed interest in Archie's case, despite the new and aggressive district attorney, there was little more that could be done at the time to move this case forward any further. For whatever reason, whether it be a lack of new information or a lack of resources, Archie's case sputtered to a stop once again, cold as ever. All would be quiet in the case of Archie McFarlane until another seven more years, 2009, nearly 24 years after he was murdered in his driveway. The district attorney asked one of his trusted veteran detectives to try and see what he could do, a man named Detective James Wallace. Maybe his experienced eye could spot something that others had missed. So he began digging. He sent his investigators to re-interview the key players in the story. They spoke to Marianne. They asked her about the nature of her relationship with both Archie and Janos. They asked her about the events leading up to the morning that Archie was stabbed. And she explained everything that happened. The things that I've already gone through here. 
how their relationship started, how it evolved, the reasons it ended, and Janos's obsessive stalking behaviors. Detectives came to understand the triangle whose endpoints would be Archie, Janos, and of course, at the center of it all, Marianne. It may be described as a story of love, as much as it may be described as a story of betrayal. It was undeniable that Archie McFarlane loved his wife to no end. And for Mary's part, it was very much undeserved. Love, yes. But exhilaration, excitement, passion, desire, it was not there, at least not for Marianne. Even at the time, at the age of 47, the age when she met Janos, who was 32, a quarter century younger than her good old reliable Archie, Marianne was still a vivacious, spirited woman who needed a little bit more than what Archie had to offer. And there was little Archie could do about it. If he didn't like it, he could leave, so she said. Archie chose to stay. Maybe he knew in the end his steadfastness, his dedication, his resoluteness would win out in the end. And he wasn't wrong. The excitement that Marianne had felt in the relationship with Janos fizzled out as soon as she stormed out on her children, her home, and her husband. The chase was over. The infatuation subsided. Janos soon just became this guy in a tiny apartment, all the while looking back at the life that she walked out on. Her good old Archie. The home that they owned. They had the savings. He had the solid pension. He had the life insurance. Pushing 50, Marianne began to look at herself in the mirror and began to question her priorities. So she went back, and Janos spiraled. Janos Koksar was re-interviewed by investigators in November of 2009, one month shy of the 24th anniversary of Archie's murder. Again, this interview was taped, and in his interview, he would be filled with denials once again. He denied making threats to Marianne or to Archie. He denied threatening to kill himself. He denied his refusal to quit the relationship with Marianne said no more. He claimed he had no hostility towards either one of them. As a matter of fact, there was no reason for any of this. Marianne was just another woman in his life who just came and went. No hard feelings. He simply moved on, easily, without a second thought. Janos was asked about the morning of the murder, and his story again evolved. He had yet another version of events different from his previous versions all those years earlier. He told detectives that he remembered that day very well. He said, I was going to go to my brother. I remember it very good because the babysitter who was babysitting for the kids. The kids, she had to go to school also, so I had to get over there early enough so the kids to get ready to go to school because my brother was working at nighttime. He then went on to explain that he and his brother made those plans for him to babysit in advance. When he walked out to his car, the police were there 
He explained that his laundry basket was in the car because he was planning on doing laundry while at his brother's house. A couple of months after talking to Janos, Detective Wallace, along with the prosecutor in the case, John Lewin, spoke to Marianne again. Simultaneously, Detective Delsine and Sergeant Fournier spoke to Janos's brother, Laszlo. They did so in two different locations, just in case to make sure that they wouldn't contact each other. Both of their interviews were surreptitiously recorded. Marianne told the detective and the prosecutor that she had a sharp memory, and it did not matter that a quarter century had nearly passed since Archie died. She was able to provide them with a detailed account of her marriage to Archie, how they met, how she grew dissatisfied with their marriage, and how she met Janos and how their affair began. She talked about all of Janos's threats and how he showed up at their home with a gun and ammunition in a case, and how he had showed up again at her home a few days after the gun incident, and how she made him breakfast while they talked, just the Friday before Archie was murdered. She talked about their meeting at Bob's Big Boy a month after. She recalled how Janos told her that something clicked with him that Friday that he left her home. Marianne had come to believe that so-called click was Janos's realization that he need not kill himself. But if Archie were killed, then he could be with her unimpeded and she could have everything that she wanted. The epiphany that Janos had in that moment was this. Marianne does not love Archie. She did not go back to him because she loves him. She went back to him because he's able to provide everything for her. She does not love him. She loves me. So if I could just find a way to get rid of Archie, she can have both. The man she loves and the security of everything he would leave behind for her. Simple. Janos gets Marianne, Marianne gets financial security, and Archie is out of the way. At the time, she felt as though the only person with any motive to do Archie any harm was Janos, and she believed in the beginning it was him, that he would be taken into custody, tried, convicted, and sent away forever. But that would not be the case. Charges were never filed. And as time passed, her thinking began to shift. Well, he's not in prison. The police don't think he did it, so maybe he didn't? That, in a sense, alleviated Marianne's own guilt when it came to Archie's death. She felt responsible, which I believe she should. But Janos wasn't being held responsible. So she let it go. She chose to suspend her belief that it was him who did that to Archie and carried on her relationship with Janos. But deep down, she felt it was most likely him. The detectives who spoke to Janos's brother didn't get very far with him. When they told him they wanted to speak to him about a 1985 murder, he said he had no idea what they were talking about. He was asked if he remembered talking to his brother while he was in custody, that conversation that they had had in Hungarian that was recorded and later translated, and he said he had no memory of that either. They asked him if Janos used to babysit for him in 1985, 
And he said yes, he did, but he would do it together with Marianne. And when they did babysit for him, it was something that they planned in advance because they would come to his house the night before and sleep over because he works nights. And as for the morning of the murder, he had no recollection as to whether or not Janos had plans to come over to his house. The investigators now believe that they had enough information to show Janos Koksar had the motive to want Archie dead. But that still wouldn't be enough to prove that he committed murder. They didn't really have anything that connected him to the actual scene of the crime. And this all goes back to the reasons why the original district attorney refused to press the charges. The crime scene was bloody. How did Janos get away from the scene without getting a speck of blood anywhere on himself? His clothing, his car, his apartment. That was the cause of all the lingering doubt. It would have been nearly impossible for Janos to have committed this murder and not get a drop of blood on himself or anything that he came in contact with. So Detective Wallace went back to the crime scene photos that were taken on that cold December day back in 1985. He slowly and carefully looked over every single picture to see if anything seemed off to him. If anything jumped out, then may have been missed. Archie had that knife thrust into his body four times and there was blood everywhere. If Janos did this, he must have gotten blood on himself. But the crime lab was unable to find a speck of Archie's blood on anything that belonged to Janos. So how and why did this happen? Well, let's say Janos did this murder. What was his next move after he plunged that knife into Archie? Well, what is known is that when first responding officers got to his apartment, Janos had wet clothing hanging over the bathtub, right? One shirt and one pair of pants. Now, dreamers, we know that when I first mentioned this wet clothing earlier in the episode, that we knew that this had to have something to do with an act of cleaning up or covering up something. It was the one outfit that Janos needed to wash that day. And he had to wash it right away. But he said he was going to do laundry at his brother's. He said it a couple of times despite changing his stories. Laundry has always fit somewhere. But there was something about these pants and this shirt that had to be washed before he went to do laundry. What's the deal with that? And it had to have been done that morning by hand. It was suspicious. When criminalists test the clothing back in 1985, they used luminol. And if you are a forensic files junkie like I am, then you've seen this chemical talked about a lot. It gets sprayed places where blood is thought to have once been, where it may have been washed or cleaned away. And when an alternate light source is applied, the places where blood or bodily fluids once were will luminesce. And lo and behold, the pants did glow in two vital areas on the pants. But when they were tested for blood, the results were negative. Something was there, but it wasn't blood. So then, more than two decades after Archie's stabbing death, detectives went searching through the evidence locker. 
and they found the clothing that they had collected all those years earlier, those pants and that shirt. They were both sent back to the lab to go through testing again, and again, there was no blood on those pants. But there was something else that they found on the pants that was odd. Remember, Janos had supposedly washed those clothes and hung them to dry. But when they pulled them back out of evidence and looked at them once again, the pants weren't actually clean at all. They were covered in mud and dirt stains. For Detective Wallace, this was his something-just-clicked moment. This was a breakthrough. The detective asked himself, If I'm going to wash these pants, what's the point of doing so? To get dirt out, right? Right, okay. But for some reason, there was still dirt on these pants despite washing but there was luminol still glowing in two places on the pants. It was perplexing. There was no blood, but something was luminescing, and it was on two very specific places on the pants, one on each pant leg, right at the knee. So, if, say, a person was kneeling down in something like dirt or mud or blood or whatever, and when you got home and you wanted to clean those stains off by spot cleaning those areas, you would do so with a detergent or a stain remover like Shout. And that's what they believe Janos did. And this is the exact glow that they were getting from the luminol. Spots on the knees. And as it seems, cleaning detergents can cause luminol to luminesce as well. The pants Janos had supposedly washed that morning were still dirty, except for the knee area on both pant legs. So it raises the question, why would Janos need a spot clean that specific portion of his pants? To try and answer this, the detective referred back to Archie's autopsy. According to the autopsy report, the fatal stab wounds were to the torso, So it made no sense that stabbing Archie in the upper torso would require his killer to be kneeling. But remember, there was that one wound to Archie's body, the unusual stab wound to the groin. So where would a person stabbing someone in the groin need to be in order to inflict that type of wound? Perhaps on your knees? Especially if Archie had already been stabbed in the chest and fallen to the ground. In order to inflict this stab wound, this would put the killer on his knees in Archie's driveway. And the spot cleaning of the knees of the pants was a concerted effort to get rid of bloodstains that got on his knees while he inflicted that stab wound to the groin. This made sense. And it fits. But it wasn't going to be enough. But once Janos had come up with a new alibi story about the babysitting which was another story that he had never presented before. Once investigators talked to his brother and tried to corroborate the babysitting story, which he was unable to because he really had no idea what Janos was talking about, all of this together would be enough for the DA. A couple of weeks later, once they had heard enough from everyone, they decided to move forward with charging Janos with Archie's murder. Finally. 
officers showed up at Janos's place of employment. He owned a little electronics repair shop, and they placed him under arrest. He was in the middle of fixing a TV when they broke the news to him that he was being arrested. He was like, okay, and he tried to put his tools and things away, and they told him to just stop. He doesn't need to do anything anymore. He's not coming back. On September 27, 2010, Janos Kokskar was charged with one count of murder with a special allegation that he personally used a deadly weapon in the commission of the offense. Just a couple months shy of the 25th anniversary of Archie's death, Janos had just surpassed the age Archie was when he was killed. They told Gary first, who had waited a quarter century for this day to come. He was 100% thrilled with the news. So much time had passed since he lost his dad. He had lived more of his life by this time without him than he did with him. He figured, you know, life had gone on. Everyone had gone on. And you just kind of live with that as your reality. But what about Marianne? Well, she had moved on too. From the loss of her husband, the fractured relationship with her son, which they tried to keep together some semblance of it for the sake of her grandchildren. But she never did move on from Janos. Yeah, she was still with him. Spent the better part of the past more than 20 years with him. Since Archie's death, Janos was the one and only. From the day she met him, she loved him. To the day she believed him to have murdered her husband, she loved him. To the day that he was finally charged with that killing, she loved him. And Marianne would be called to testify against her love. By this time, she was 75 years old. To say she was a challenging witness is putting it nicely. She was problematic. She was evasive. She often stated that she couldn't remember details that she had clearly remembered when she was interviewed the year prior when detectives were reinvestigating the cold case. The normally sharp woman had gone fuzzy with her memories. Luckily, they recorded those interviews. They played those for the court as well. The two recordings that she made with Janos after the murder too. The one of her confronting Janos after he was arrested the day of the murder and the recordings at Bob's Big Boy. On the stand, she confirmed that Janos had threatened her several times after she had moved back home with Archie, though she made several attempts to minimize those threats during her testimony. She also made it clear that she did not know of anyone else who took issue with Archie, except for Janos. The prosecutor wanted to know more about Marianne's relationship with Janos following Archie's murder. He got straight to the point. Are you in love with Janos? Her answer, no. You're not? Over the past 30 years, have you been involved with anybody else? No. We're friends and companions. Ma'am, during that 30 years, you were having sex with him, correct? Yes. 
I assume you have friends and companions that you don't have sexual relationships with, right? Yes. So he is the man in your life, is that correct? Yes. As her testimony continued on, many of her answers consisted of, I can't recall, I don't know, I don't understand your question. All the while, Gary looked on. You know their relationship never fully recovered afterwards. But the emotions he felt were a mixed bag. It was impossibly painful to watch his mom continue on in her relationship with the man who he knew did this to his dad. But it was also hard watching his mom appear as though she was the one on trial. It was necessary, though, in order to understand the mindset that Janos was in. Gary took the stand and he testified to the incessant calls that Janos made to their house to speak to his mom, begging her to come back to him. He said his mother told him that Janos was threatening her, and she told him about them at the time that the threats were being made. And both he and his sister Linda, who took the stand, said that they knew of no enemies that Archie had. Also called to testify were officers from the original investigation and when the case was reopened, as well as the criminalists from both time periods of the investigation as well. They testified at length about the spot cleaning of the knees of the pants. It was important for the prosecutor to get it across to the jury what the spot cleaning on the knees meant, that they reacted to luminol but tested negative for blood, that it was possible for those areas to luminesce as a result of a detergent or a cleaning agent being applied to those areas, that those were the only areas that were spot cleaned. Otherwise, the entire pair of pants would have luminesced and what the implication of all of that meant when it came to Archie's murder. That Janos knelt down on the ground next to Archie after he stabbed him in the chest, stabbed him at least one time in the groin, and in doing so, got blood on his knees. And then he raced home, he spot cleaned the knee areas of the pants because blood, especially fresh blood, is relatively easy to get out of clothing. The McFarland's next-door neighbor, a man named Terry Savalt, took the stand. He was an ear witness to the killing. He testified that when he woke up a few minutes before 5 a.m. the morning of the murder because he heard some sounds outside his front window. He heard a voice screaming or yelling, and then he heard someone say, Hey! And then he heard the shuffling of feet, followed by a thud, and then he heard the sounds of feet running away. He said the thud sounded like a body falling. And at first, I tried to envision what that sounded like. And the only thing I could think of is when I worked in preschool and the kids would be playing. I distinctly remember knowing the sound of one of them falling onto the pavement, especially when they hit their head. It's an unmistakable sound whenever I heard it. And then there would be about a three to five second delay before we start hearing the crying begin. I can't recall ever being near enough to an adult falling to the ground, but I imagine it sounds similar, even making a louder thud than a child would. Terry looked out his window towards the street, but he did not see anything. 
He went back to bed for a few minutes until his alarm went off at five. He got out of bed. He took a shower. He began getting dressed for work. He was just about to affix his tie when he heard Gary yelling for his dad. He ran outside and saw Gary coming out his front door and Archie was lying on the driveway. He rolled him onto his back and called out for Gary or Marianne to call 911, but they were in shock. So he ran back to his house and called 911. As he put the phone down, he saw that he left blood on the receiver. He came back to Archie and tried to look for a pulse, but could not feel one. The DNA from the blood on the McFarland's driveway Fingernail clippings and swabs taken from Archie's body were collected at the time of the murder. The technology to test it did not exist until a dozen or more years after the fact. Once the technology was available, testing was conducted on all the evidence collected and nothing tied Janos to the scene or to Archie's body. A medical examiner who reviewed Archie's autopsy testified though he was not the one who conducted the autopsy in 1985. He described the five stab wounds inflicted. One was in the middle of the chest. One was in the left lower abdomen. Two on the left side of the chest. And one very high on the inside of the left thigh. Three of the chest wounds would have been fatal. The wound in the middle of the chest would have been rapidly fatal because it went through Archie's heart and into the aorta. This wound would have caused Archie to lose consciousness very quickly. The other two fatal wounds went into the left lung, and one of those hit the edge of the liver, though neither one of those wounds would have been as rapidly fatal as the one that went through the heart and aorta. The medical examiner testified that the wound on the upper portion of the inner thigh was highly unusual, and the direction of the wound was straight up. He opined that, based on the directions of the various wounds, the most likely scenario of the stabbing was that the wounds to the chest and abdomen were inflicted while Archie was standing up. The wound to the center of his chest would have caused Archie to lose consciousness quickly and he would have fallen down, and the wound to the inner thigh was inflicted while he was on the ground. Archie also had one wound to the inside of one of his fingers, and the medical examiner described this as a classic defensive wound. It is also important to note that most of Archie's bleeding was internal. Nearly three liters of blood was inside Archie's body cavity. Then a Volkswagen mechanic named Jose Vargas was called to the stand to provide testimony regarding the heat generated by air-cooled engines in 1964 Volkswagen Beetles, which is what Janos was driving in 1985. He made it clear that if the car sat there parked since the day before, the engine would not have been hot in the morning in temperatures of 39 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius. He testified that if the car had been driven the distance between Janos' apartment and his brother's house, which was only two miles on a cold morning like that, under those circumstances, He would not expect the engine hood to be hot to the touch, not in that short of a distance. But racing back from Torrance to Long Beach, yes, it would be hot to the touch. But the defense presented their own Volkswagen expert, who happened to be a forensic expert, 
who also happened to live next door to the McFarlands, which I thought was kind of an odd coincidence. But he said it was possible for a VW engine to get hot in a short distance under certain circumstances. If the driver was running the engine at a high RPM, and VWs then were a manual transmission, so assuming the car was driven fast in second or third gear on the streets, or if there was a mechanical problem with the engine, that could cause it to run hot as well. The defense brought up their own forensic scientist to review the blood and DNA results. He said that based on the photos of the scene, the blood present, the types of wounds that Archie received, he would have expected the killer to have gotten blood on his shoes and clothing, and there would have been blood transferred into the car used to flee the scene. He did have to admit that most of Archie's bleeding, as I stated earlier, was internal, and that the blood distribution at the scene could have resulted from the administration of CPR or any moving of Archie's body. Case in point, when Archie was stabbed, very little blood was expelled from his body at the time of the stabbing, thereby getting little to no blood onto the assailant. Janos did not take the stand in his own defense. The jury took a little more than two and a half hours to return with its verdict. They found Janos Koksar guilty of murder in the first degree and found that he personally used a deadly weapon in doing so. He was sentenced to 26 years to life in prison, 25 for the murder and one for the weapon. I personally think they could have charged him with first-degree murder with the special circumstance of lying in wait, but that may not have been a thing back in 1985 as they could only charge him with the laws applicable back then. Janos has appealed as much as he could until finally the California Supreme Court refused to listen to it anymore. Today, Janos is 67 years old. He will become eligible for parole in February of 2027 when he will be about 75 years old. As for Marianne, well, on the day her murdered husband finally saw justice and a conviction was had for her lover, found guilty of committing the murder, she was not present. For her part, to be made to accept that Janos did this would be to have the brunt of the responsibility of all of this fall onto her shoulders. Because if it were not for her passing her phone number onto that new and exciting young man that she happened upon in Alpine Village all those years ago, none of this would have ever been. And it would be more than Marianne could bear no matter how hard reality slaps her in the face, she could not allow her mind to go there. Today, as far as I can see, she is still alive, 82 years old now, still living in Torrance, California. Gary would say he still loves his mom. He doesn't carry around any bitterness or anger or resentment towards her. Would he like some answers to his questions? The hard questions? Would he like her to speak to this with truthfulness and veracity? Certainly. But in the end, what goes on with someone's matters of the heart 
is really nobody else's to ever truly understand. And that brings the 78th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this story or any other cases that we have covered on the show, please feel free to join the California Dreaming discussion page on Facebook. We talk about our cases, other podcasts that we listen to, documentaries that we watch, all kinds of stuff, true crime and non-true crime related. You can follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Don't forget to leave a review for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcatcher you listen to your shows on. Be sure to check out California Dreaming's Patreon for bonus content. And if you would like to get some sweet merchandise, I'll post a link to the store where you can get t-shirts, hoodies, tote bags, mugs, all the good stuff. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. I am very proud to be a part of this amazing group of show and hosts, so please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a very sweet Valentine's Day, if that's your thing. If not, then I hope you have a sweet February 14th or President's Day or whatever. And until next time, sweet dreams. of writing about crime a canadian true crime podcast that looks for the story behind criminal cases the people the places and the events that join together to create a narrative not a scoop i am not reading you the news i am writing about crime i hope you'll join me on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts in five, four, three. Hey, everybody, this is Danielle. And this is Daniel. And I'm Carla. And we are Hoosier Homicide, a true crime podcast by Hoosiers for Hoosiers or for anyone that doesn't know what a Hoosier is. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't know what a Hoosier is. Do you? Yes. As a matter of fact, I do. Great. We don't need to look anything up. <laughs> Go to Wikipedia and type in Alabama Hot Pocket. No, don't do that. <laughs> And that'll tell you what a Hoosier is. Just come listen to us. You'll find out. Anyway, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is at Hoosier Homicide. You can also download any episode you prefer off of Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. We tell true crime stories with some random connection to our home state of Indiana. So come listen. That's what she said. For the love of God. (laughs) And for honest to goodness, stay stay out out of the the corn. corn. Pretty good.